Welcome to the Wet Podcast, episode number two. Thank you for tuning in to the Wet Podcast. This is episode number two. I am your host, Eric Marshall. You can find show notes at ericmarshall.net. That's www. E-R-I-K-M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L dot net slash wet. EricMarshall dot net slash wet. You can find me at eMarsh on Twitter. I talked to Paul Levinson today, and I was very happy to do so because he has such an interesting perspective and such a long history of academic writing, nonfiction writing, fiction writing, music, uh, all kinds of things. True Renaissance man. Uh, he was very generous with his time. I was very happy to talk to him. And I think that you'll really enjoy listening to this. He has some great advice and an amazing perspective on the media landscape of today, uh, kind of how we got here and where things are going. He has some great advice for uh, writers and creators. And he really, uh, it was really a pleasure talking to him. I was very thankful to uh, to to get um, almost an hour of his time, and, and he was very gracious to to do that, and just so excited. So that's awesome. Uh, I want to thank everybody for the also for the positive feedback on episode number one uh, for, with Audrey Waters. I uh, want to remind you that you can find this podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher and anywhere else that you find podcasts. So go ahead and check that out. Uh, I do appreciate re- uh, reviews on iTunes and the other platforms that you find podcasts on. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. I have with me Paul Levinson. Of Are you at Fordham University? Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In New York. I'll just tell you just kind of quickly how I came across your work. Uh, I, I came across you when I started grad school in 1999. I um, quickly became interested in digital media and film studies, and uh, particularly in how digital media changes film spectatorship and distribution. Um, that's what my dissertation was about. And so I read your digital McLuhan um, pretty early on in, in my grad career. And I ran across a lot of your, uh, articles just kind of over the, over the years. Um, it wasn't until recently that I, I didn't know that you wrote fiction until I came across you at K on K boards, um, which for people who don't know is the, is a message board for, uh, for publishers and people who use Kindles and stuff like that. So I started researching you and I was like, oh, this guy's actually really, really well-rounded, um, especially for somebody who also does academic work. Uh, so that's kind of my background with you, but mostly it comes from the academic, uh, the digital McLuhan and, and some of your other, your other stuff. So I guess I thought maybe we could start there if you wanted to talk about kind of... Um, um, maybe some of your earlier nonfiction and academic work and kind of springboard from there? Sure. Well, first of all, let me say that uh, I often say only partially uh, in jest that critics of my scholarly work have said it reads like science fiction. And uh, critics of my science fiction have said, what is this, uh, an academic article? <clears throat> in fact, I, I, I have like a little a tiny short story called Synchronicity, 
and uh, it's up on a place called Buzzy Mag. It's like 700 words. It's a short story. And, and, and I've gotten like some compliments along the lines of, I really loved your essay. So, you know, f the serious part of that is actually I'm complimented because I think that um, good nonfiction should have the elan and, you know, the, the, the just sort of literary thrill, if it's working, that uh, fiction has. There's no reason that scholarly nonfiction has to be a boring tome. And at the same time, science fiction, I think at its best, is uh, important in a philosophic or sociological or psychological sense. Certainly the Foundation Trilogy is, is, is a major work mm -hmm. of philosophy. You know, it has to do with Laplace's demon. If you could know everything in the universe and therefore predict the future, well, what, what then? So to me, these two uh, kinds of writing are, are very closely related. So maybe I'm not that well-rounded, although I'll, I'll certainly <laughs> take, take the compliment. And I should also mention I also uh, write and, you know, sing music. So, you know, another guiding principle of mine is... As far as we know, you only get one ride on the merry-go-round. You might as well do as much damage as possible. There's no point in holding back. I mean, and that's actually advice I give to everyone about everything. If, if you can do something, if you have an idea, go ahead and do it. Now, the fact that I started uh, writing and getting nonfiction published prior to my science fiction is almost a coincidence and uh, in fact it goes back I can tell you the exact year in which that decision by me was made and uh, the year was 1978 early 1978 when I was writing two things I was writing uh, a science fiction novel time travel novel parts of which were later published as uh, short stories and analog by the way and I was starting to work on my doctoral dissertation. And I had this idea that I could do both, you know, based on what I just said. It wasn't all that much different that, you know, I, you know, do a little of the novel, go to the dissertation, do some of that, go back to the novel. So that worked for about uh, two months. And uh, I came to realize that, hey, I was getting much more work done on the novel than the <laughs> dissertation which, by the way, is called Human Replay, A Theory of the Evolution of Media. And I'll talk to you about that in a, in a couple of minutes or seconds. But anyway, I decided back in 1978 that I had no hope of ever completing the dissertation if I was writing science fiction alongside of it because it was just too much fun writing the science fiction. I mean, you can't beat it. You make up your own rules, you know, has to have some semblance to reality, but you don't have to worry about footnotes and references and all those things. Anyway, my first <clears throat> then really important nonfiction work, in my opinion, is my doctoral dissertation, uh, which way back in the 70s developed a theory which at first seemed so obvious to me that it didn't need any uh, development or further explanation, but the more I thought of it, about it, and the more I looked at what other people were writing, especially critics of technology and media, who are legion, I realized that I ought to develop this idea a little more. And, and the idea is simply this, 
that as we advance our technology, what the technologies do become increasingly human or human-like. They don't become more artificial, they become more human. So, back in the 70s, there was no such thing as a Google Hangout. Uh, there really wasn't even a personal computer back then. Uh, if we had wanted to do this back then, we could have done it through a telephone uh, conversation. Or I guess I could have gone into a studio, and you could have gone into a studio. It would have been very expensive, and we could have done it that way. But the point is, what we're doing right now, you know, looking at each other, and not only that, recording this so people will be viewing it, uh, that couldn't be done in the 1970s. And it's a perfect example of the trajectory of technology, that as it develops, it fulfills our human inclinations, our human perceptual habits. Uh, and in the dissertation, I went into a whole analysis of how, well, first what the telegraph did, it, it, on the one hand, it fulfilled our need to communicate instantly across great distances. On the other hand, it was extremely artificial. Uh, the telegraph dealt in communication, which was triply abstract. Right? I mean, there's the Morse code, which has to be translated into written words. Uh, and, and those written words, in effect, are transcriptions of what would have been spoken. So you have three levels there uh, before you even get any communication. So that was highly artificial. And it's therefore not at all surprising to me that we next developed a telephone, next developed uh, audiovisual materials, and so on. So uh, that uh, dissertation uh, was finished actually in late 1978, and in many ways it's the basis of all the other nonfiction books that I've done. Probably my next uh, important nonfiction book in terms of uh, making an impact on the world, and there were a few philosophy books that I wrote in between, but uh, it really wasn't until 1997, just a few years before you read Digital McLuhan, that I wrote uh, what in my head to some extent is a couple with Digital McLuhan. Uh, it's called The Soft Edge, A Natural History and Future of the Information Revolution. And what it does is it traces the history of communications from speech itself through the cutting edge media of the late 1990s and shows how at every step of the way it made us more human, not less human. By the way, I came up uh, when I was writing my dissertation back in the 70s with a name for this, uh, a, a nice, awkward, ungainly name. So, you know, uh, anthropotropic. Anthropo from the same root as anthropology, human-like. Tropic, uh, you know, plants are heliotropic. They grow towards the sun. And, and so what I'm saying is as media develop, they become increasingly human, they, they literally evolve under human direction towards more consonance with human communication. Um, and then, you know, a lot of what I did um, was basically keeping pace with what was going on. Digital McLuhan, though, was a book that I had in mind ever since I started working with Marshall McLuhan, which I had for a few years in the late 1970s. And, uh, a month or two after he died, I, I wrote to an editor at St. Martin's Press, 
this is one of the reasons, by the way, when I tell you what the response was, why I have, uh, in many ways, so much criticism for the destructive impact of traditional publishing. Because I wrote to this editor and laid out essentially what Digital McLuhan was about. It wasn't called Digital McLuhan. It was a proposal in 1980, so I wasn't talking about digital media, but it basically was a book examining the ap applicability of McLuhan's ideas to uh, the, the media, uh, not only of the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, but even the beginning of the 80s. And I got what can only be described as a smarmy response from this editor, who was otherwise a nice guy. And I basically said, oh, you know, Paul, you know, you're such a good writer, but, you know, no one is interested in McLuhan anymore. You know, he's <laughs> had his day, and, you know, do you have any other ideas? And that, that, that. So, you know, I said, okay, forget it. I put it aside. I got back to it in the late 1990s, and, and what, what I wanted to do is bring McLuhan's thinking into the, the modern digital age, uh, because what I realized pretty early on is all of our digital media in one way or another fulfill views that McLuhan already had. It's not that he was prescient, but he was so keenly in touch with the way human beings communicated and thought that he understood that we would someday be able to communicate to anyone anywhere in the world uh, with anything that we wanted to, and he called that the global village, which of course was not in existence in the 60s. And then, you know, we can talk more about this as well, New New Media, my most recent book, uh, first published in 2009, second edition in 2012, brings these ideas to bear, my ideas, McLuhan's ideas, on the revolution in social media. And I, I called the book New New Media, not because I was stuttering, but <laughs> because, uh, you know, a new medium would be the traditional iTunes or Amazon in which uh, you as a consumer have enormous access, but as a producer you have virtually no access, meaning right. you, you couldn't put a song up on iTunes. Even now it's not easy to do that. And uh, up until the Kindle you couldn't put a book, uh, if you had written a book up on Amazon. One of the reasons I'm so excited about the Kindle revolution is because it has turned consumers into producers. And that I think is the key with all new new media. So they're not just new, they're one level even newer than that. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. Uh, the whole the, the move towards consumers becoming producers. And there's a lot of resistance to that, right? In publishing right now and in the music industry, there's a lot of uh, pushback from the people who have the power now or who have had the power, right? Because new yeah. media was about selling stuff more efficiently, right? But yeah, exactly with the same right. models, but new new media, it, it flips it on its head. Absolutely right, and what has happened, and you know, to some extent it's always been the case, but uh, the uh, computer revolution disseminated uh, digital technology so quickly that um, the powers that be in the traditional media were caught off guard in every single 
case, just about. So, you know, we saw this first with uh, music. You know, traditional record companies, I mean, they're, you know, they, they still exist in name, but they're no longer at the cutting edge of, um, of music presentation. And neither are radios, for that matter. You know, people stream the music on Spotify. They may listen to the radio, but it's not as it was when I was growing up in the late 50s, early 60s, when you would listen to the radio like your lifeline to the world for the, for the next Beatles song or, or whatever you were following. And uh, th there's no doubt that uh, traditional publishing has um, really been caught off guard. And um, without giving away specific uh, information, I spent weeks um, haggling with one of my publishers about what they thought were necessary permissions that I had to get to include uh, in, in my book. Um, and, you know, there is something called fair use, which is ambiguous. What fair use is about is you, if you're using something for educational purposes and you have a small enough piece of the overall work, you don't need permission. But on the other hand, even a book that's used as a scholarly textbook, someone is making money from it, so you might need permission. But the, the, the publisher was so harried and so feeling that it was under the gun uh, that I, I had a conversation, which I wish I had recorded. It's almost laughable. I had a quote. I have a quote from President Obama in the book. Now, in, in, in copyright law, it's crystal clear things that were never covered by copyright. Among them are official government statements. And they say to me, well, did you get Obama's permission? So I said, do you, do you, know, uh, you know the copyright law? At one point they asked me, did I get permission? I was quoting a conversation that I was having with a student. And two things about that. Number one, you don't need permission to quote your own material. And second of all, verbal utterances, if they're verbal and not recorded, are also not subject to copyright. So th th it's gotten so bad that publishers don't even understand, in some cases, their own areas of expertise because they're scrambling so quickly uh, to, they think, catch up with. Uh, and in some ways, they're not wrong because the, the Kindle revolution is, is such a radically different development in, uh, well, since the printing press, the relationship that has existed between the author and the publisher, in which the author, you know, the first printing presses were so expensive that only the monarchies could afford them. They weren't even private, they were public, and that's why the first political documents for most printing presses were what we would today call propaganda. Right. But as, as time went on, they became less expensive, so you did have private companies printing up uh, documents, and that led to the rise of newspapers and, you know, books as political tracts. Uh, but the author, in, in that case, was still um, out of luck. And, you know, interestingly, you know, the, the very word copyright comes from a royal dispensation. It was a right to have copies made. Uh, of your work, which the monarchy gave to you, the author. <laughs> so England actually was ahead of the game. They changed that with the Statute of Anne, I think in 1710 or something around then, uh, which said, hey, you know, copyright is something that the author has. But the commercial publisher has held sway over the author ever since then, and they don't like the Kindle Revolution.
And that's why you have disputes like Amazon versus Hachette. And uh, you know, this is being recorded before it's going to be viewed. So for all I know, that's going to be settled. But it, it certainly is not going to be forgotten from the history of media, whatever happens. And actually, I'm thrilled to be part of this. And um, I, 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 every time I publish something on Kindle, uh, in addition to just the satisfaction I have as an author having a book published, I, I just love doing it that way. It's a lot more fun than sending the manuscript into your editor, and if you're lucky, 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 maybe a year or a year and a half later, the book will be published. Right, right. I think a lot of people don't publish because they send something in once or twice, it gets rejected, and they say, oh, I guess it wasn't good enough, and it, that's not the case at all a lot of times, right? It's just that that editor didn't want that at that time for whatever reason, didn't think it, think it could sell or whatever, but with Amazon, you can you know, create your own covers, you can, you can edit, you know, you can, you know, publish new volumes if you want. You can, and it's up right away, right? If you finish your book today, you can have it up by tomorrow, right? Yeah, you could have it up by today if you have a cover and you're all ready to go. But and yeah, I mean, I guess Amazon takes like they say it could take as many as 12 to 24 hours. Usually, it's published four or five hours after you click the publish button. But yeah, you know, I've given this a lot of thought for decades, and you know, it's interesting to think about the fact that uh, up until uh, the Kindle, as far as books were concerned, the the, the gatekeeping model. Uh, was basically the only game in town. And, you know, its advantage, its raison d'etre, its, its publicly given reason for why this is so good is that it keeps garbage out of the public intellectual realm. So, you know, th this is what the, you send something to, a, whether, whether it's an article to a newspaper that you want to have published or a book to a publisher, uh, there's someone there who reads it and can say, oh, no, this is n no good, so it doesn't get published. So that's its advantage. But, you know, years ago, back when I was a kid, uh, I read a poem by Thomas Gray, Elegy uh, in a Country Church Yard. And it has a, a, a you know, so the whole poem is worth reading. But there's a little bit of that poem that always stuck with me. Many a gem of pure serene, the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear. Many a flower was destined to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. And that, I think, that mm -hmm. th those four lines capture the tragedy of the traditional gatekeeping publishing model. The, the tragedy of who knows how many great works were out there that dullard publishers turned down. <laughs> and, right. you know, this is not uh, an abstract, arbitrary thing. Uh, you know, the Beatles were turned down by 25 different record companies before, you know, EMI signed them. Imagine that. Can you imagine that? These are the Beatles, the same Beatles, the same music. You know, I want to hold your hand, the great sauce from back then. 25 tone-deaf, you know, people in record companies said, nah, you know, maybe can you get a little more of a four-season sound? Uh, it's a little too rough. And everywhere you go, you find that um, Doom was turned down by as many publishers. Uh, 
before it finally found a home. One of the best science fiction novels and giving rise to the trilogy and, in fact, a whole series in science fiction. In fact, I would say Dune is second only to the Foundation series. So this was turned down by numerous uh, publishers. And um, that, I think, is it, it, it's, it's, it's a tragedy for the author or the musician, but it's also a tragedy for the human species because we were deprived of all these works in, in which the author just didn't have the psychological wherewithal to send it out to a 26th publisher after 25 right. people had turned it down. Uh, and that's the, the era in the traditional gatekeeping system. That's the weakness in the system that Amazon corrects. And yeah, there's no such thing as just a, a medium that only does one thing and it's an advantage. There are always trade-offs. And yeah, so uh, the fact is, I guess there is less quality control, to call it that, when people can publish on their own. But, you know, there was a study done, and I talk about this in New New Media. It was published, I think, in Nature magazine back around 2005, 2006. And uh, it was a study that very carefully examined the errors in the Encyclopedia Britannica and the error ratio on Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia, of course, again, is totally bottom-up. You know, there are no, everybody's an editor. There are no editors who ha have superior rights. You know, there are administrators. There's a little bit of control. But basically, you can write anything you want on Wikipedia. And this study in Nature found that I'm <laughs> no difference, no significant difference in the error levels of this established austere Encyclopedia Britannica and in Wikipedia. And, of course, the reason is is that Wikipedia has its own error correction. Every other reader, who, right. when you, she reads something, can correct it. So I think this new system is great, and we're just at the beginning of it. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I wonder how many great novels are in someone's drawer somewhere because they're rejected by editors or, you know, and people who haven't found Amazon yet. And, you know, you think about if the Beatles didn't go to that 25th or 26th, you know, record company, you know, and think of all the great bands that didn't. And uh, and you're right, they the, the, they did form, a, there was a function that the, the gatekeepers, and I use the past tense here, the gatekeepers did <laughs> perform a function, a valuable function, but good stuff got left out as well. And that's, and that's, you know, now it's completely different because the, you know, they had to worry about costs. They had to worry about, um, you know, distributing the physical copies of the books or the records or whatever. And now if I put up, like I'm writing a novel and a memoir right now, I'm, I'm, I'm not sending them to anybody. They're going straight up on Amazon when I'm done, you know, once they're edited and, you know, the covers are done and I can't wait. It's going to be great. Um, and if they don't sell, they don't sell. It doesn't, it costs you my time and the, and the money for the editing and cover, but you know, the risk is lower. Uh, I don't have to worry about gatekeepers telling me what I can and cannot do. And if anybody who wants to read it, will be able to read it for a, for a reasonable price. And it's, it's nice. Exactly. And one of the things I've discovered, uh, you know, especially at my age, and I always urge people uh, along these lines, gets back to what I was saying before about doing it. If you have an idea, do it. Once you get something out to the public, once you, by whatever means, and uh, you know, as we've been discussing, it's never been easier with Amazon, 
uh, using Amazon, by, by whatever means, get your work out there to the public, it instantly begins to take on a life of its own. Mm -hmm. And it, what can happen is totally unpredictable. You know, way, way, way back in 1972, uh, when I was uh, a singer-songwriter and I had uh, songs out on Atlantic Records, Fooder Records, whatever, well, my band and I recorded an album. And we brought it around to like a bunch of record companies, and you know there was some interest. And we, who knows, if, had we been a little more patient, we might have gotten a deal with a record company. But you know, patience was never one of my virtues. I don't even know if it is a virtue. But we decided to put it out on our own label. So I created my own record company, Happy Sad Records. Paid for getting it printed up. Um, you know, what I always tell people is it sold a negative number of copies. I think we got more <laughs> copies returned than we sent out. <clears throat> anyway, for many years, the only human beings who heard this album, Twice Upon a Rhyme, were my wife and our kids. And, uh, you know, they seemed to like it, although maybe they were just trying to make me feel good. But um, back in, now it seems like a long time ago, like maybe 2002, a record magazine in Japan is doing a review and uh, of what they call lost cult classics and they have like a major review of my album now it certainly was lost um, <laughs> cult maybe classic not so much <laughs> but anyway so as a result of that you know I put it up on iTunes and you know a, a, a company called Beatball Records in South Korea gave me a lot of money to reissue it in CD, and then another record company in England, Whiplash Records, said, can we remaster the, the vinyl and put it out? So my point is, these songs were recorded in the late 60s, very early 70s, but because I had enough wherewithal and motivation to put it out in a record form, 30 years later, it was rediscovered and, you know, now, uh, you know, I won't say I'm making as much money in my music as I am with my writing, but, I, you know, it is selling, it's, it, and it's, it's amazing to me. So the, the, the moral there for, for everyone is, yeah, you have an idea for a book, first of all, write it, but second of all, just take that little bit extra effort, get it up there, get it out there on Amazon, and maybe it won't happen overnight, maybe it'll never happen, maybe 5, 10, 15 years from now, when you've almost forgotten about it, someone will read it and discuss it. Look, even the fact that you first got to know my work by reading Digital McGlue in 1999, so here it is now, 2014, I, who would have predicted in 1999, certainly not you and not me, that we would right. be having this interview, you know, 16, 15 years later. So all of that is testament to the life of its own quality that the publication in the larger sense, whether it's music or books or whatever, getting it out to the public uh, has. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And the and the way we <laughs> and the way I found you again was through a forum for people who are self-publishing right and i saw sure. your name and i was like is that the same paul levinson and sure enough right? I was like, oh. so it was one of those like kind of you know synapses started firing and i was like oh, okay okay and it's great i love this you have this kind of uh kind of i want to say just do it attitude not to you know kind of uh take off a of nike or whatever but, but you have this attitude if you want to do it just do it right 
Right. And I think that for a long time I struggled with with not with with fear, right? Of especially as an academic, a budding academic, I was like, oh, I can't write creative work because I'm an academic. That won't be accepted, right? Well, all the while, the best science fiction I'm reading is basically media theory and cultural theory, you know? Um, I read K.W. Jeter's Noir. I don't know if you know that. Mm-hmm. It, it's, yep. You know, and I'm like, this is as good as a lot of critical theory or media theory that I've seen, you know? Or, um, you know, David Foster Wallace, I think, fits into that very well. A lot of fiction is... is So it took me a long time myself to figure out, well, you just, you know, you do it, you put it up, you put it out, and see what happens, right? That's right. And, right. Uh, and that's a that's a great attitude. So you uh, you you worked with Marshall McLuhan, and um, now if I if I read correctly, your dissertation advisor or mentor was Neil Postman. Yeah, and I, I'll tell you the story of Neil. First of all, okay. uh, I, I I love him. He he passed away a few years ago. I I miss him. And in fact, he was my main teacher at New York University, where I got my PhD in in a field of study that Neil was partially responsible, along with uh, Marshall McLuhan, for creating, called media ecology. And it, it has nothing to do, you know, with growing vegetables, although that's very good and important. But it, it's the ecology of media and the fact that the media are each interrelated with other media in the same way that biological species are in, in the natural world. Uh, but I have to tell you about Neil. When I first started uh, studying with him, we thought somewhat alike about media uh, and, and its impact on society. And then somehow Neil took a turn and uh, he began talking more and more about, oh, my God, these media are damaging us, and they're rendering us illiterate, they're making us rude. Um, you know, he wasn't the only one who was saying it, but it was arguments along the lines of if a kid uh, grows up watching television, and when you're watching television, it's perfectly okay to turn around and talk to somebody else. It's okay to get up and walk out of the room. It's okay to fall asleep in front of it. Well, then this is teaching the kid that that's appropriate behavior to do in a classroom. So, you know, it's an interesting analysis, but I think totally untrue. Uh, be, mainly because um, human beings are very, very adept at getting the difference between different media and different uh, in-person situations. Um, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the 1950s, there used to be like an old joke. Uh, if your little kid is watching Hopalong Cassidy, he's, he was like a cowboy, make sure you don't have a toy, make sure the kid doesn't have his little toy cap pistol because there was an urban legend, which was an urban legend. I mean, for all I know what happened, but the reports were urban legends, that a kid was watching Hopalong Cassidy and the bad guys got the drop on poor hop along and so the kid said here let me help you and threw his little cap gun through the television screen and destroyed what in those days you know probably cost like a thousand bucks it was worth like ten thousand bucks but you know that never happened and uh, the the idea that uh, media can make us rude and and media are hurting us I think is just not the case and in fact back then and this was you know an age before the internet, 
when television was at the cutting edge of our communication, I thought television did a lot of good. I mean, obviously, you could literally learn stuff on PBS, the original Cosmos series uh, with Carl Sagan, which, by the way, was one of the inspirations for my for the sequel to The Plot to Save Socrates on Burning Alexandria, because that was the first time I really got to know Hypatia, this uh, ancient woman who, uh, well, I don't want to give too much away about her story, but she played a role in the declining years of the ancient library of Alexandria. Um, so I thought the television was actually a very useful medium and had enormous benefits. I even wrote an article called The Benefits of Watching Television. but. Neil and I, uh, near the end of my time as a student and afterwards, although we remained close personal friends, we also were at extreme disagreement over the role of media. So much so that Neil thought that the digital revolution was bad. He thought it was dangerous. Mm -hmm. he, he thought it was just a, a greater waste of time. And I once even had a conversation with him where I said to him, you know, and I'd actually studied this in one of Neil's classes, the, the Phaedrus, this uh, Socratic dialogue in which Socrates is talking to Mr. Phaedrus, or whatever his first name was. They only had one name in those days for some right. reason. But, uh, and, uh, you know, Phaedrus says something, have you read the book? Have you read this guy's book on this topic? And Socrates, rather than addressing the content, you know, of the question, basically performs a media analysis and he says to Phaedrus, hey, you know, I, I wouldn't uh, read too many books if I were you because they're not a really very good way of communicating. Phaedrus says, what do you mean? Socrates says, well, you know, if you have a book in front of you and you have a question and you ask the book a question, it gives you but one unvarying answer, namely what's already written in the book. So, you know, books have their limitations, and Socrates, you know, the great proponent of dialogue is saying it's much better to keep this open and in a dialogue form where you can have a real conversation. So I, I remember I had a conversation with Postman in the 90s, and I said to him, um, don't you see that the Internet, even in those days, is basically giving to the written word uh, what Socrates was yearning for uh, back when uh, the Phaedrus was written. In fact, in that dialogue, uh, Socrates says, I yearn for an intelligent writing which will answer questions that are put to it. And, uh, you know, now, for example, on Kindle boards, that's most of what happens there. And it's great. Somebody has a question. You know, what do you think of this cover? What do you think of Kindle Unlimited? What do you think of this or that? And, uh, you know, there can be hundreds of responses. This is the intelligent writing that Socrates yearned for. And by the way, I talk a lot about that in The Soft Edge, uh, Natural History and Future of the Information Revolution. But um, I often say, although uh, Postman was my most important teacher, and that's true, I mean, being in his classroom was a real thrill, that I failed utterly as a teacher in educating postmen about the importance of, uh, of digital uh, media. <clears throat> and the last time I saw Neil uh, before uh, he, he died, I think he died of lung cancer, he 
for the first time had found out that I was a science fiction writer and I, we had a great discussion and he was saying I had no idea you wrote science fiction so see he was like you I said yeah and uh, you know that made me very happy that he he finally read some of, some of my work but um, he he was a charming uh, man he was a gifted teacher uh, he just happened to be wrong in his analysis of the media <laughs> Well, yeah, I was I was really surprised to see that he he had uh, directed your dissertation because he's not known for being as enthusiastic as you no. to to put it mildly. So yeah, that's a yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, I you know when I when I found out that you write science fiction, I immediately downloaded and read the plot to save Socrates, which I loved. I thought it was great. Um, I won't I won't give anything away, but it's you know yeah. there's time travel involved and it has to do with Socrates, and it's pretty great. So um, right. it must be hard to write time travel. I've always thought, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> you must have had timelines written out or something. or but, not, uh, Yeah, not written yeah, out, no. but in my head, well, actually, right yeah. now, at this moment, and again, I, I know it's going to be, you know, a couple of months uh, before this is, uh, the, this podcast is available, but uh, I'm now about 90% finished writing uh, my third Sierra Waters novel, so it'll no doubt be finished, maybe even published, uh, but I'm not going to tell anybody the name until it's published, but <laughs> it'll be clear on Amazon that that's the third novel. So I'm right into this, you know, you know, thinking through these timeline issues, and i got to tell you, the third novel goes much further than the first two novels in terms of really twisting around timelines and doing things okay. that are sort of implied were happening in the, in the first and, and even the second, but didn't actually have done. So uh, it, it's fabulous. I mean, in one sense, you know, I go swimming just about every day, and I often think about the fact I'm swimming, that thinking about a time travel novel is, is like the equivalent in the mind. It's like mental exercise. Oh, sure. and I, I, yeah, and, you know, and I actually swim in a pretty slow, leisurely way. You know, I was like a lap pool near where I live, uh, north of New York, and uh, I do the breaststroke, you know, nice and slow, um, but sometimes like an hour or so, and and it not only uh, helps me write, but that's, to me, what thinking through these time travel paradoxes are. You can't do it fast, because if you try to do it too fast, you'll you know, die of exhaustion because I mean, it is so mind-boggling. But if you just like sort of think it through and weave it through and slow everything down, at least for me, the, you know, I can see then where all these things are connected. But uh, but I just love it. I mean, I think in fact, uh, you know, and people sometimes surprised to hear this. I I don't think as you know as a technology time travel will ever happen. I mean, I'd be excited if it did, mainly because I think the paradoxes are just, you know insurmountable and you know you, you know the paradox if I if I go back in time and accidentally prevent my grandparents from meeting well then how did I go back in time in the first place and you can you can resolve this by saying well the instance that you accidentally or deliberately prevented your grandparents from meeting by the way it's usually the older version is you kill your grandfather but there's no need to be so violent just, <laughs> just prevent it from meeting um, how then did you go back well the, the instant that happens a new reality was created call it reality two in which you don't exist but you the time traveler went back are r one or reality one so th that's how you can work that but if you follow that to its logical conclusion it means at every drop of the time traveler's hat a new reality is brought into being, that's frankly even more incredible than time travel itself. 
so yeah, you could figure out ways of getting around it, but I think in reality it probably is not going to happen, and that's another reason why it's so much fun to write about because it really yeah. it's science fiction at its epitome because it'll probably never happen, but yet it seems so scientifically logical when you map it out. Yeah, and that's why it's so fun to read as well, right? Because yeah. you know, thinking through all those problems. You know, I've heard over and over that um, like from people who write. And do other kinds of intellectual work. That exercise is important. You said you swim for about an hour a day. I know people who walk. I walk. I know people who run. Right. Um, and this is just a really practical question because you are so prolific. Do you have a set of habits or um, you know kind of systems that you work through? Do you just wake up and write or? Well, first of all, I'll tell you, I think exercise is important. And, um, you know, I, I, in the winter, uh, Fordham University has an indoor pool, but I'm, I'm not able to swim as much as in the summer. Uh, so I do try then to walk more uh, in the winter. So I, so I still get that exercise, and it does get, you know, the juices flowing. But I'll tell you what my secret is uh, as far as being so prolific, and that's not letting any social requirement get in the way of my writing because there are a myriad you know of social things I mean it, it, you know you have friends you have family they're always in the for the best reasons in effect wanting you to be with them and and it's great you do want to be with them and I'm not saying that you should become a hermit but I found that obviously you might in a good situation feel that the book or the work is writing itself but that's just a metaphor you're not not writing the book's not writing itself you're writing and in order for you to write you have to write and that means I think that you have to have a frame of mind in which anytime you feel like writing you need to give in to that impulse if at all possible now um, Smartphones have made that a lot easier because uh, I, I've been known to pull over to the side of the road and quickly, you know, send an email to myself with a couple of lines, you know, if it's that important. Usually, it can wait to wherever I I'm going to, but obviously, I have a computer in my office at Fordham University. I teach a class. Very often, I come upstairs to my office, close the door for 15, 20 minutes, and um, and write. Uh, Charles Darwin, to just bring another prolific writer into this, uh, a great thinker, was known as a hypochondriac when he was alive. And near the end of his life, he admitted that most of the time when he was telling people he wasn't feeling well, he was lying. He just needed the time to write. So, you know, that's, I think, what it, what it takes. You know, the fact is, in the end, uh, the social engagements that you don't do and the people that you might disappoint by not seeing them, uh, they'll forgive you when you have a book out because they'll be so happy that you have a book out and that they know an author. Uh, but that, that I think, is really the key. But, but the other point, though, that I would really emphasize is that's what works for me. There, there are some people who um, need the regimen of writing at the same time every day I, I, to me, that would be like a straitjacket. So for me, the regimen is, you feel like writing, write. And there's no doubt that as soon as we finish this, I'm going to get back to writing. You know, it's a beautiful day, uh, and I'm sitting out here on my porch, and, uh, you know, I'm going to get some more writing done. 
if somebody calls me and says, hey, do you want to have lunch? I'm definitely going to say no uh, because I, right now I want to do writing. Uh, maybe tomorrow if somebody calls me and I'm, you know, I've just finished writing something and I need a break, I'll have lunch with, with somebody outside uh, of my cottage, but uh, my porch. But um, that, I think, is the key for me. The, the larger point is I think most people know sooner or later or more or less what works best for them. And, you know, if you want to call it you amuse or, as the Greeks thought, you know, amuse me outside, came in and inspired them. Some people think the muse is inside of us. Whatever that is, um, you, you need to identify it as best as you can and feed it, give it what it wants. And that way you'll be happier, it will be happier, and if you're a good writer, the world will be happier. <laughs> that's that's great advice. That is great advice. It sounds like you, like you, you forgive yourself if you don't write for a day because it wasn't there, but you also make sure you do write when the desire or the idea hits and that's that's interesting that's right. I'm, more, I'm more regimented myself I try to be I, I try to write every morning <laughs> just before okay. I do anything else but the uh, the social engagements that's really interesting because with social media going back to kind of this digital media is destroying us thing social become it's in your home as well now right if you leave your browser open if you have your Facebook or your Twitter open or your email you know, and you know, I found like just a simple act of closing my browser <laughs> increases my my uh, my creativity and my output. You know, many many fold. You yeah, know? and it's 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 the same same concept, but it's hard because a lot of people don't want to do that. Put your phone in the other room, you know, uh, close the browser or whatever, and uh, that's that's been my version of of not doing the social stuff. Um, right. But I, I'm guilty of of you know, someone calls me once a lunch, yeah, I'll have lunch or like overcommitting, yeah, stuff like that. But that's that's great advice, you know, and it sounds like it's you know, it, it it's in line with your other advice too, and you're of just if you want to do something, do it, you know. Yeah, but the, that's right. The flip side is that you kind of have a responsibility to yourself to actually do it. That's right. right. Well, look, the, the fact is um, I don't understand people who don't create. So, you know, yeah. you know, we're very, I'm very different from anybody who doesn't create. I mean, I know a lot of people who don't create, although most my family are all creative in one way or another. Um, but... Um, so I don't understand them, I admit it. But I think that anybody, you know, who does uh, create, uh, at least for me, there's there are a few things as painful as, you know, okay, I'm driving in a car and I'm on the highway, there's no place that I can stop and write something down, and I've gotten to the point where I've thought through this conversation that my characters were having, and I want to write it down. And, you know, again, I've been known in this highway scenario, and assuming I'm driving, you know, myself, nobody else is really inconvenienced. And even if they were, probably I'd inconvenience them. I've been known to pull into a, you know, rest stop uh, and, and quickly write what I, you know, want to write. Because, I, you know, it's not that I'm afraid I'm going to forget it. It's, you know how it is, you sometimes get like the words and you know that they're right. Those are the words, you want those exact words and you can, you know, commit them to memory but that sort of freezes the process and you don't want that to happen either. So, I, so that's why I think, you know, 
if you are writing or doing anything and you give in to that impulse, it's, it's the best thing to do. You feel happier as a result of it, and everyone around you is happier. Yeah, it's, that's that's really great. I know there are times I've woken up from dreams with great ideas, and the times I didn't write them down, you know, I'll remember later. Right, it's always never. It's always gone. I never know. stays. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's that's great advice. Well, we're recording this on July twenty third of two thousand fourteen, and I'll probably release it towards the end of August, beginning of September. And if your book is out, uh, your newest one, I'll I'll definitely put a link to it in the show notes. Um, and I'll link to I'll link to some, I'll link to some of your other work as well for sure because I've enjoyed reading it, um, and I know a lot of other people will as well for sure. Thank you. Um, Tell, tell people where they can find you. Okay, well, there are a bunch of places. In some ways, Twitter is the easiest. I'm at Paul Lev, P-A-U-L-L-E-V. So follow me, say hello. I'll almost certainly follow you back. Um, my blog, which is called Infinite Regress, it can be reached in a variety of ways, but probably the easiest is Paul Levinson. Dot net and that, uh, there are two L's in there, P-A-U-L-L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N.net. And on there you'll find what's mostly on the blog, my reviews of major television, but you'll also find links uh, all over the blog to my various uh, books, uh, nonfiction and fiction. Uh, search for me on YouTube. Um, just search Paul Levinson. I have like over a hundred uh, videos, uh, you know, up there. Uh, you know, various interviews that I've done with people ranging uh, from Bill O'Reilly to nice people like you on the <laughs> other end of the spectrum. <laughs> right. So yeah, I'm all over the place. And uh, but you know, the main point I want to make is uh, I'm very uh, eager to meet more and more people online it's a lot of fun and so i'll always be responsive I, I appreciate that and uh yeah you responded very quickly to my invitation and i really really appreciate that as well so um this is going to be primarily an audio podcast but do you mind if i post the video when i post the audio as well not at all i'd be delighted if you posted the video great Fan. That's why I've been. That's why I've been smiling so much. Uh, <laughs> is that why? <laughs> I should have combed my hair or something. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I'm a, a hopeless case as far as hair. <laughs> well, <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Anytime. Have a great rest of the day. Hey, you too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Wet Podcast, episode number two with Paul Levinson. You can find show notes at ericmarshall.net slash wet. You can find me at emarsh on Twitter. And you can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time. Bye.